friends, colleagues, very warm welcome to you all to the annual Esmond Harmsworth Lecture on American Arts and Letters. Um, it's a great pleasure to welcome Esmond here again and to thank him for having made possible this wonderful series, which has indeed been spectacular over the years and continues to thrill and engage our audiences every June. Thank you very much, Esmond, for all that you do for this place. And a warm welcome to all of our visitors, especially those who are coming to us for the first time. Um, this is a wonderful place to be. And this afternoon's distinguished speaker, Sabina Murray, who comes to us from Amherst, Massachusetts, is an American woman of letters showered with prizes and awards, and rightly and justly so, for her wonderful work in a number of genres. And she is going to speak to us this afternoon on the topic of bouncing across. And she and I did have a discussion as to whether it should be across or along the plank. Sabina, it's a great pleasure to have you with us. Thank you. And I, <clears throat> I said that it was across because it was an Americanism. And so I've embraced it. <laughs> so my talk for um, this afternoon is going to be bouncing across the plank and its history, politics, and the literary imagination and... Thank you for being here. Um, it is a great honor to have been invited to present this year's Esmond Harmsworth Lecture. In the past, I've been told writers have talked about the influences on their work, a nice broad charge, the kind that keeps you up at night and makes you wonder if you've ever had something worth saying. And if you haven't, this might be a good place to start. I promise to talk on history, politics, and the literary imagination, but this seems more generative than exclusive. Bad things happen over and over and are often variations on the same theme. This is my working definition of history. <laughs> things are always wrong, though people don't always agree on what these things are. This is my working definition of politics. People long for understanding and sometimes write things down. That's my working definition of literature. And the plank, the bouncing plank, is the link between the real and imagined. But how to begin? The South African artist William Kentridge in the first of this year's Norton Lecture Series at Harvard started this way. He said that he prepared for the six lectures by listing every thought he'd ever had or remembered, somebody else's having, and divided by six. <laughs> Given the parameters of the Harmsworth Lecture, I have not had the luxury of dividing by six. So I've compiled my list, looked at it, and selected what I think will take us the farthest in the space of an hour. With that in mind, I've decided to talk about the following. The Clavero, formerly a steamship. A trip to Iquitos. Why writers like Roger Casement. Moving things around in the Belgian Congo. The rear guard of the Amin Pasha relief expedition. My father's time in a Jesuit seminary. Melancholy objects. New Jersey resident Joseph Bonaparte. Francisco Goya, The Donner Party, A Caveat for Women Writers with Asian Heritage, The Possibility That One Doesn't Improve with Age, and The Sculpture of Philippe Letterston. 
This past October, I traveled to Peru having booked passage on an Amazon tour. The boat was a Clavero, built in Paris in 1876, and brought to Peru for use as a naval vessel. From about 1880 to 1914, the rubber boom years, the Clavero plied up and down the Amazon and its tributaries, the Ukiali, Marignan, Tigre, and Napa rivers, first employed in exploration, and then, once posts were established, to deliver the mail. Now the Clavero is used for ecotourism. I did want to see the birds and the pink dolphins and the monkeys, but I had booked the tour to research my novel in progress, Valiant Gentleman. This book is about Herbert Ward, an English adventurer and sculptor, and Roger Casement, a humanitarian and Irish revolutionary. They are both historical figures. The first two meet in King Leopold's Congo and are closed for a number of years, but the friendship disintegrates in a clash of loyalties during the First World War. In 1910, the 36-year-old Roger Casement is in Peru investigating allegations of slave labor brought against Cesar Arana, a rubber baron from Iquitos. Casement spends some time over the next few years chugging along the Amazon from Iquitos to Manaus, although more time penning his impressive second indictment of the rubber industry, his blue book, and circuiting the drawing rooms of the powerful and moneyed enlisting support for his cause. I had wondered what Roger Casement might have thought on the Amazon and was there myself to facilitate a more articulate wondering. To take my week-long trip on the Clavero entailed first flying into Iquitos. One must reach Iquitos by plane or by boat up the Amazon from Brazil. Iquitos had its heyday in the rubber boom and there's a sense of decay about the town. The tiled colonial mansions that line the Malacón Maldonado are losing their ceramics into the street. But, despite the irrelevance of rubber, the riches of the Amazon are still flowing into Iquitos, and the floating market of Belen, although in October one does not float, but rather treks through mud, boasts everything from gutted turtles for spicy stew to chuchiwasi, a native medicine most often used as an aphrodisiac. When I was there, some massive drainage project was underway, and many of the streets, notably the one in front of my hotel, had been torn up. The dry season was just ending, and clouds of dust were suspended in the air, buoyed by the exhaust of the thousands of motor cabs that circulate throughout the city. The Clavero was docked an hour and a half away in the town of Nauta, gateway to the Amazon, and a minibus soon appeared to take me and the other travelers off to our adventure. Nauta has an Old West feel to it and is one step further removed even than the otherworldly Iquitos. From Iquitos, the only place to drive to is Nauta, and from Nauta, one can only drive to Iquitos. In this region of Peru, Iquitos is the apex of civilization, impoverishing everything that aspires towards it. Because of problems mostly political, the Nauta Road took one year per kilometer to complete, and locals will draw attention to the miracle of it existing at all. After a mile or so of chicken shacks at the Iquitos limits, the road divides mostly jungle, interrupted by the occasional lodge or graveyard. 50% of the town seems to be bars or honky-tonks, 
constructed out of scrap wood and in a hurry. The buildings continue in a haphazard fashion to the very edge of the river, where, precariously perched on the muddy bank, they seem poised to slide into the water. The Clavero and its sister boat, the Ayapujo, were moored here, although there was nothing resembling a dock. A plank extended from bank to deck to accommodate embarkation, and in response to this promise of spectacle, a group of children and a few dogs had gathered. I overheard one of my fellow passengers ask if there were anything to see in Nauta, and the response of one of the crew, an unhesitating no. (laughs) Women looked up from their washing to see me and the other gringos bounce across the plank, aided by sure-footed deckhands. As I stood on this narrow makeshift bridge, I could see my muddied reflection in the Amazon's black water and had that suspended feeling that one senses in the moments before falling asleep, as dreams waft upward into consciousness. There is a porous boundary between the real and the imagined, and on that plank I felt for an instant that the two were mingled. I could see the one imposed upon the other. The Clavero was to navigate up the Marignan River into the preserve where we would anchor at a station set up to monitor wildlife. There was a skiff with an outboard motor for forays up tributaries to local villages and to sites that offered interesting trails. Meals were to be served in the dining room, walled in fabric to create a rubber boom era vibe, where we would sit on chairs upholstered in red velvet. These details seemed comic but somehow authentic, and made me think that even in the 1890s, damask walls and red velvet cushions were a way of denying true location, as if these small European intrusions, a way to remain observantly European, had always been a bit pathetic in their attempt to ward off the wall of jungle and the power of the river as it slid itself and all upon it toward Brazil. The Clavero no longer ran on steam, but the constant rumble of the generator, when silenced, produced a melancholy and frightening vacuum of sound. Somewhere behind the wall of vines and river's edge, below the bristling canopy noisy with a flash of macaws, there were wild rubber trees. In the tidy villages where there are palm leaf groves and grassy plazas that doubled as soccer fields, were the descendants of the Indians who had worked to collect the rubber. Casement had ventured to the Putumaya to verify accounts of atrocities that had reached him through his consular connections. As a British subject, he had no jurisdiction in Peru. Even if England had wanted to intervene, the Monroe Doctrine recognized that if a paternal role were to be played, it would be the United States to do it. So, in a rather convoluted way, Casement pursued the story of Barbagians, British subjects, who had been imported to the region to serve as overseers in charge of the indigenous laborers. If Barbagians were involved in committing atrocities or were victims themselves, it was a British concern. Also, as a large part of the shareholders in the company were English, Casement felt that the moral mantle that weighed heavily on the shoulders of England should perhaps be dragged in this direction. 
Although I hazard to think that even casemen who appeared in Peru with a dogged sense of purpose might not have been sure about what he would find. His journal entries, which meander here and there, sometimes forceful and determined, sometimes laconic and sensual, show that his narrative was reflective, unfocused, and constantly changing, like the Amazon waters he traveled. Casement's journals, along with earning him infamy as he recorded in detail his gay assignations, are a fantastic account of his trip on the river. Outraged by the fact that there were more human beings held today in hopeless slavery accompanied by the most inhuman cruelty than at the heights of the overseas slave trade, his nerves began to fray. Friends worried about his mental stability. He was wrecked and in pain from what was probably arthritis. He complains of feeling seedy, which for casement usually meant he was suffering from a bout of dysentery. All around him was a recognizable Eden that was being degraded as he looked on. In the night sky, he witnessed a lunar rainbow and called his colleagues on deck to witness it. For Casement, it was a good omen, a reminder that God was looking down on him, hating the sin and loving the sinner, and watching over the defenseless Indians as Casement strived to protect them. Defenseless, gentle, and beautiful. Of the young Aridomi, a Huitoto Indian who would travel to England to raise awareness for his cause, Casement writes that he would make an excellent subject for his friend Herbert Ward. I thought of Herbert all the time and how he would rejoice to have the molding of those shapely arms in real bronze. Casement characterizes the Indians for their simplicity and fatal obedience. In contrast of the Africans, whose rights he's also championed, he states, the African never feared blood. He liked its flow. To Casement, the African was not living in paradise, as was the Amazon Indian. The African had fought wars with his own kind, and then with Arab slavers. He continued to fight the European, and although he was not the European's equal in this battle, he was a far more recognizable person a closer human than these sleek-haired, wide-eyed Huitito and Shipibo tribesmen. Of course, Casement was mistaken in his assessment of the Indians' relentlessly peaceful nature. And as for defending themselves, perhaps confronting Cesar Arana head-on was more than they could handle. But to this day, tribes like the Awa still live, isolated, armed, and hostile, in the Brazilian jungles just to the east. Joseph Conrad and Roger Casement were friends. This relationship has been recorded in every major Casement biography, as well as in several accounts of the Belgian Congo. In Adam Hochschild's exceptional book, King Leopold's Ghost, there are few days spent together in a shack in Matadi, as Conrad, with Casement's assistance, prepared himself for his journey up the Congo, acquires an almost gem-like sparkle. Hochschild reconstructs Matadi with its drunken sailors, African prostitutes, and young European and American adventurers hoping to get quick, rich quickly off the ivory boom. 
Nobel winner Mario Vargas Llosa has written an entire book devoted to casement, Dream of the Celt, and I would be very surprised if some of those thousand or so pages are not devoted to Conrad, although the English translation has just come out and I can't yet confirm this. And some of us may recall Conrad and Casement together again, if not in a room, then in a chapter in W.G. Sebald's Rings of Saturn. The notion of these two young men sharing mean accommodation at the razor edge of wild Africa with a blackness of colonialism massing all around demands mythologizing. Cotton duck clothing, trim beards, tea and tin cups, a chorus of frogs, and the great wheel of history make for heady reading. Of casement, Conrad says, thinks well, speaks well, most intelligent and very sympathetic. And casement thought much of his Polish writer friend. Casement was drawn to the literary and penned a considerable number of poems, but his work was never more than amateur. His passionate nature was great, for producing a number of lines, stringing out and on, all to a tremendous Burnsian beat. But he lacked the cool eye necessary to document atrocity as art. As evidenced in these lines from the Battle of Ben Burb, 1646, which he wrote in 1882. As they neared Yellow Ford, where Bagnell met O'Neill, joy gathered in our throats and broke above their cannons peel. <laughs> Roger Casement saw the benefit of detail, but not of restraint, and his great written works are both fact-gathering reports. Casement's role was as organizer and supplier. As Conrad notes, Casement knew the coast languages well, and he and Conrad traveled to the outlying villages holding palavers with the local chiefs in the days before the departure of the Roi du Belge. Conrad's journey certainly needs little documentation. His small boat chugging to the upper reaches of the Congo beyond the churning cataracts of Matadi accomplished that well and also managed, and at the same time, to drag all of literature into equally uncharted territory. Still, it is interesting to look at Conrad's letters of the time. The good health that he arrived with soon deserted him. In his Congo diary, he, like Casement, complains of feeling seedy. In later letters, he has a five-day bout of dysentery accompanied by a high fever. The sense of adventure seems to have gone the way of the good health. Conrad finds everything repellent and is aware that he, too, is repellent to all those around him. Of his three-year contract in Africa, he will complete a mere six months, at which point he will return, salmon-like, to the level expanse of salt water, which, writing from his bed in the throes of a fever, is what he desired most of all. And perhaps salmon-like is a good metaphor to raise at this juncture. Much is written on Conrad, and as for Casement, Conrad used him as inspiration for Marlowe, shaping and molding the character to suit his needs, of course. But Marlowe shares career and circumstance with a young Casement. As Casement was still forming himself into adulthood, others were already forming him into literature. Of all the Irish revolutionaries, Casement has inspired more writers and poets than anyone else. I've mentioned books by Vargas Llosa and Sebald. 
Those caseman-inspired works are recent additions to the canon. But there's a whole lot more. And although Caseman's poems were never more than amateur, he did inspire some of the heavyweights. This is from a poem imaginatively titled, Roger Casement, <laughs> by Yeats, written in 1938. Come, Tom and Dick, come all the troop that cried it far and wide. Come from the forger and his desk, desert the perjurer's side. Come speak your bit in public that some amends be made to this most gallant gentleman that is in quicklime laid. And this more recent edition from Paul Muldoon in 1992, which was written as a plea to the ancient order of Hibernians to let gay and lesbian Irish people march in the New York St. Patrick's Day Parade. As for the Hibs standing in the way of Irish lesbians and gays, would they have stopped casement when he tried to land a boatload of guns on Bannerstrand? Several novels a slew of biographies, most recently an impressive doorstopper, Roger Casement, Imperialist Rebel by Seamus O'Seekin, a play produced at the Abbey Theatre in 1972, Roger Casement, Prisoner of the Crown, an acclaimed radio play, Cries from Roger Casement as his bones are brought to Dublin, and a ballad, The Lonely Bannerstrand, that my friend Deborah Devaney sang to me on my back deck one star-speckled night after several drinks. It was, she said, her party piece. <laughs> the critic Lucy McDearbin writes, the extraordinary quantity of casement material is not just a sign of the enduring fascination of sex, national martyrs, and exotic adventures, though it is that at least. I like all those things, and, as we learn time and time again in a startling array of venues, a good scandal does make for good reading. Roger Casement and Herbert Ward met in the Congo as young men in autumn of 1884. One of the big problems in the Belgian Congo was transporting things. The Congo itself was only navigable in the upper reaches, so if anything was in one place and needed to be in another, it had to be done with porters. Since there was a lot of stuff, rubber, ivory weaponry that needed to be ferried about, a lot of men were needed. And Roger Casement and Herbert Ward worked together both procuring and managing these gangs of porters. Men were not as vulnerable to tsetse as donkeys and other beasts of burden, although they presented problems of their own. Walking for hours on end with a 60-pound load on one's head is not the most fulfilling work, and porters were inclined to run off. Also, Given the physical nature of the task, illness was a constant problem, as was finding food for all these people in places notable for their remoteness. 1884 finds Roger Caseman and Herbert Ward transporting the steamship Florida to the edge of Stanley Pool. This was done in pieces, of course, since the only way of getting the boat to where it needed to be in order to reach the navigable stretches of the Congo was on the heads of porters. The shaft of the steamboat was drawn on a cart pulled by men. I don't know how Roger Casement and Herbert Ward kept their spirits up in a job that was sickeningly routine unless interrupted by disaster. Roger Casement had his heartfelt poems and Herbert Ward his sketches, which were accomplished, plentiful, and varied. 
And both men were well-versed in a number of local dialects, which must have taken up some of the hours not consumed by supervising hundreds of people. Herbert Ward was an avid hunter. Roger Casement shot at things. Elephants, hippos, birds. It seems everyone did then. But he wasn't as passionate about it as Herbert Ward. There were bottles of Madeira available at different times and a constant supply of the local firewater, malafu, made from fermented palm juice. But I'm sure much of the time this adventure in the wilds of Africa was brutally boring, as many adventures, when dissected, must be. When the explorer Henry Morton Stanley passed through with a caravan of Zanzibaris, their porters, weaponry, pomp, circumstance general well-being, and the entire journalistic machine of both England and America in tow, Herbert Ward joined up. He became part of what was known as the Amin Pasha Relief Expedition. What he didn't know, I imagine, is that as he shouldered his rifle and rucksack, he was not signing on to some noble cause, but actually committing himself to partake in one of the most egregious scandals of his day. I can't really do credit to the character of Amin Pasha in this short time. He starts his life as Edward Schnitzer in Germany, a medical man, although not quite a doctor, an opportunist who shows up in Istanbul, acquires the Amin and the Pasha, works his way over to Egypt, and becomes governor of the southernmost province of present-day Sudan, working under joint Anglo-Egyptian rule. At some point, he is threatened by modests living to the south and thinks that an English militia might be a good deterrent to these modest revolutionaries. And after the modest victory in Khartoum and the death of the well-liked General Gordon in just the previous year, the English needed to flex some muscle in the region. British troops had showed up in Khartoum two days too late, and many British subjects had lost their lives. Visions of hanky-clutching English ladies being swept off by turbaned infidels on Arab steeds sprang handily to mind. (coughs) Stanley was a contracted employee of King Leopold, but the Belgian monarch agreed to temporarily relieve Stanley so that Stanley could rescue Amin Pasha, but Leopold wasn't doing anyone a favor. That Stanley was using the Congo as his starting point is worth noting. The obvious place to begin the journey to Amin Pasha was Dar el Salaam, which would have routed the expedition through English and German territory. But Stanley was in the employ of King Leopold, and Leopold had other ideas. All the riches of the Congo were filling his coffers, and he was curious about the lands to the north. If Stanley started out from Matadi, the expedition would have to plow through unknown lands, the mysterious Ituri forest included, opening up that territory and on the English dime. Herbert Ward, as recorded in his account, My Life with Stanley's Rearguard, knew nothing of Amin Pasha and signed on for sport and adventure, both of which he achieved, although not in the way he might have predicted it. Upon arriving in Matadi, Stanley realized that he had too much stuff and not enough people to carry it all. And had he sufficient porters, there wouldn't have been enough food. Of course, boats could be used on the upper reaches of the Congo, but there weren't enough boats, although Stanley did commandeer them all, annoying missionaries and businessmen alike. Stanley even took the Florida, which as yet had no engine. He used it as a barge. 
Stanley decided to go ahead with a smaller, quicker group and to leave a few officers behind to watch all his things. Tipo Tib, an Arab trader, had promised more porters, and in the increasingly unlikely event that the porters showed up, the rear guard, as his camp came to be known, would join up with Stanley and be part of the glorious rescue. Unfortunately for Stanley, there never was a glorious rescue. By the time Stanley made it through the Aturi forest, having sustained shocking losses, the, the Mahdists had quieted down, and Amin Pasha didn't want to go anywhere. Unfortunately for Amin Pasha, the relief expedition turned, uh, stirred up the Mahdists again, making it impossible for him to stay. Amin Pasha's story continues on without us, but I leave you with this image. At his farewell dinner, the nearsighted and far libated Amin Pasha, thinking to take some fresh air on the terrace, accidentally walks out a window. It is a non-fatal accident. The same can be said of his life. Back in Yambuya, the digs of the rear guard, things are not going well. The man in charge, Major Bartolot, has lost his mind, although he seems never to have been much in control and is taken to striking everyone within reach. People are dying by his hand and because he is inadequate at providing for them. Bartolot is eventually shot by a Sudanese porter after having the porter's wife flogged for drumming at dawn. Herbert Ward has ordered a man to be flogged who subsequently dies. And James Jameson, one of the Jameson whiskey heirs, has purchased a girl and given her to a cannibalistic chief so that he can witness firsthand cannibalism. <laughs> All men inclined to women have acquired a woman, and Herbert Ward, according to several sources, has made this possible by trading his tall boots. <laughs> Herbert Ward's own account, written in journal entries, mentions the boots twice. First to say, I am in a deplorably bad way for clothes. The few things are shrunk and torn and cobbled, until I can scarcely wear them. God only knows how I shall appear when this expedition is at an end and we arrive once more in civilization. No boots, that's a certainty. And two days later, he writes, Salim came down to see my drawings and I gave him a pair of old top boots that I could no longer wear. So we are to believe that poor Herbert has lost his boots not once, but twice, and still hasn't managed to get himself a woman. As Herbert Ward attempts to clear his name and makes a hash of it, he becomes of interest to me. The boots make him more than a historical subject. The boots make him human. Herbert Ward survives the scandal, marries an American woman, works for newspapers, becomes a sculptor, lives in France. His joy, his anguish, he dies. That is his whole story, and that tells us nothing about him at all. <laughs> when I look at these historical figures, I feel that my role is that of Dr. Frankenstein. The essential parts are there, but they do need some stitching, and in the end, something, electricity, to bring them to life. To learn about the histories of these figures sometimes animated to every cause, like Roger Casement, and sometimes obscure, like Herbert Ward, requires reading a number of different accounts, often by the figures themselves. This is bombardment. 
The fiction writer distills the fragmented entities to provide one take, a composite yet animated as a whole, a monster with the gift of speech. There is no absolute history. We know this. To a certain extent, history must be subjective. How it works is that we agree on a few key items, things, dates, the names of people, whatever is at stake, and between these intermittent anchors, we create linkages. There is a functionally infinite number of places to mold how the facts are seen. As a writer, I agree to accept these facts. I avoid being speculative with events. I am most concerned with personality and, in incidents shellacked by familiarity, revealing how it might feel to have witnessed firsthand. History seems to be a very public thing, but it must be engaged privately, and in this becomes personal. My father, now we're getting personal. My father spent a large chunk of his 20s as a Jesuit scholastic. There is a photograph taken in the late 50s of my father as a young man, and he's wearing a cassock. As a child in a Catholic household where the local priest would drop by unannounced and the bishop would walk me home on his way from his residence at Holy Rosary to hear confession at the Carmelite Monastery, men in robes were familiar to me. I knew what the cassock meant. The equivalent of the bat phone to God and no children. The image of my smiling father, so attired, has no doubt contributed to my constant awareness of being here, but by the grace of God. And the winking mischief of the future, the fact that I know warily that the future will surprise, informs all of my work. Two years ago, deep into the writing of my most recent book, Tales of the New World, I visited my father, now a retired anthropologist, in Maine. This book of stories is all about explorers, and I was, short, I was sort of shopping for appropriate subjects. My father asked, was I interested in Hanno the Carthaginian, the first known navigator of the west coast of Africa? He had written a paper on this explorer while still in the seminary, translating out of the Greek, and he still had it. As Tales of the New World is about explorers, it is also about their written accounts, and one important aspect of the book is how, at significant moments in history, the explorer has the power to create the new world for all those eager readers back in civilization. So, as I considered subjects for my stories, my first question would be, what did the explorer do? And the second, what's the related document? As I paged through my father's essay, bound in a tan folder, typed, the margins filled with encouraging penciled notes from the long-ago professor of Greek, I felt sure that the necessary document was the account of Hanno's journey, engraved in Punic on a bronze tablet. Hanno's story, his accounts of fiery lakes and gorillas, who are neither apes nor people, was intriguing enough, but I couldn't find my way in. The classical world has been carted so casually through the ages like a battered suitcase that to try to chronicle the life of that time becomes inescapably comic. I do like Malouf's, David Malouf's novel about King Priam, 
Ransom, I think it's an exception to this. But my classical figure, Hanno, seemed more cousin to the Socrates and Bill and Ted's excellent adventure than any character from Virgil. I had made a mistake. I had not only chosen the wrong document, but the wrong explorer. The document was in my hands, my father's essay, and the explorer was, therefore, my father. The story Paraplus, which literally means the wandering around, starts with a young Jesuit scholastic in the seminary library writing a paper. He tries to think of how to write about Hanno, the man, but rather accounts of Hanno, and therefore the people who wrote about the explorer. And the young scholar's trials mimic mine as I attempt to wrestle the story onto the page and also to engage the classical world in a meaningful way. The young seminarian questions the purpose of scholarship. He asks about the account of the Paraplus of Hanno. How many people have approached this document of 630 words and found volumes within it? How many words wash up against that original telling, conceived to neatly fit upon a bronze tablet, approaching and approaching in hopeful, scholarly erosion? I don't know how much of the writing of this paper my father remembers, but I'm sure that whatever remains is now tainted with what I invented for him, that the details of my story, vivid, immediate, recent, have become mingled with the actual events, and that this memory, once a safe and distant historical fact, has become irrevocably tampered with by my fiction. Although the actual past would seem immutable, Memories do change, and so in a workable sense of things, the past is constantly in flux. The actual bronze tablets on which the Paraplus was written are now lost and have been for some time. We owe our knowledge of Hanno to a work of Pliny that history tells us was first brought west in the 15th century by Cardinal, most likely from Constantinople, in the decade after the city's fall to the Turks, then passed from a Basel convent to a Protestant scholar during the Reformation, then, as a result of the Thirty Years' War, was carted off as Catholic booty to the Vatican. It is an interesting provenance, more interesting because the object is lost, and it is the story that we track. But the imprint of the original bronze tablet hovers in the mind's eye like a ghost. Often, it is the objects themselves that speak of the people that once owned them. And I'm sure that everyone here has experienced that specific melancholy that rises when we stand for too long in an antique store or, more powerfully, when we encounter a number of objects from our childhood each one evoking in a speedy, visceral way the steady passage of time, each one echoing what has been lost in the assertion of what remains. The histories of objects and their ties to people, provenance, seems at first sentimental. However, as we all know, it affects the cost of things, and in that literally values story and sentimentality. Provenance puts a price tag on story. Stories are not always possible to validate in absolute ways, and questions of authenticity always flare around art, around objects that could be valuable, around people too. 
This is from my novel Forgery of 2007, a first-person narrative told by Rupert Brigg, a specialist in decorative arts with some provenance issues of his own. Here, a woman wants to sell Rupert a dresser. This dresser belonged to Joseph Bonaparte, she said. I knew all about Joseph Bonaparte. In 1816, Napoleon's brother Joseph, once king of Naples, once king of Spain, finding himself without a kingdom and banned from living in France, made the unusual choice of relocating to New Jersey. He created an estate called Point Breeze, just over the river from Pennsylvania, and began calling himself the Count de Sauvillers. The house he built was enormous, and he filled it with stuff, including work by Titian, Velazquez, Rubens, Rembrandt, and da Vinci. I had read somewhere that he had a mirror hanging over his bed, and that the walls in his bedchamber were covered with paintings of nude ladies and famous conquest scenes along the lines of the Rape of Europa. The paintings were all auctioned off in 1847, along with the other stuff, the tables and chairs, bookcases, dresses and candlesticks, the fine china, the sterling flatware. Much of the Joseph Bonaparte hoard is not authentic, and Rupert knows that the dresser fails in this regard. But the woman's need is real, and so he chooses to purchase the dresser, finding the woman's emotional pull of a more valued authenticity. I like writing about art because I like writing about objects. My working definition of art is the object that is valued for what it is rather than what it can do. But despite this rather broad definition, I most like writing about paintings. The first artist I was ever aware of was Goya. My mother had a small, elegant volume of his work with color plates, and I spent hours flipping through it. The editor of this particular volume had a thing for gore and gothic. And although the Mahas and Spanish royals did make an appearance, the glossy pages most often depicted witches, devils, people wielding knives and guns, people collapsed in violent deaths. There was one painting, however, which stood out from the rest, and this was of Saturn devouring his offspring. The painting itself was shocking, but also the story, a parent who eats his children. I was already scared of cannibals thanks to a creepy wooden statuette that my anthropologist father had in his study, an Ifugao tribesman with a dismembered foot. But the Goya, a European sensibility that also admitted the existence of this particular horror, drove it home for me. The Ifugao, tri- the Ifugao Filipino tribesman, living in remote areas who, in the present era, are far more likely to eat a frozen pizza than a neighbor, (laughs) seemed just that, remote, but the Goya. If Saturn was both a mythological and therefore not human figure, I had only to turn a couple of pages to see a depiction of a a pair of very Spanish-looking Iroquois eating some unfortunate Jesuits. People could eat people, and people probably did, and if I had a hard time picturing what that looked like, well, here was Goya to help me out. I turned to this subject, cannibalism, for my novel of 2004, A Carnivore's Inquiry. 
A Carnivore's Inquiry is a black comedy that follows a young woman as she travels around ruminating on cannibalism in Western culture, meeting men, and eating them. I was thinking about the saber-rattling aspect of America, the part of the culture characterized by an ease in conquering and subduing, manifest destiny and all that, which brings with it a dangerous innocence. Back in the 1800s, when people were actually manifest with destiny and heading westward, it was a dangerous prospect. We all know of splintered wagon wheels, intrepid pioneers picked off by Indians, grim bonnet-wearing grandmas, brave Bible-clutching children, and all of that heading across the plains and either stopping there or continuing on to California. Although the majority of Americans at this point were still peasants in Ireland and Italy or Mexico or Iran or China, we all inherit this pioneering legacy. That's the spirit of the country positive or negative, strike out, make it yours. But of all these parties that headed west out from Missouri onward, the most famous, the one remembered by name, is the Donner Party. They're special because they got snowed in in the Sierra Nevada mountains, and those who did survive managed it through cannibalism. And the Donner Party does make it into a carnivore's inquiry. I read of Keysburg, the last survivor, who is cooking some part of Mrs. Murphy, one of those grim, bonneted grandmas who has made it westward, but not quite west. Snow settled on the cold, withered legs of Mrs. Murphy, dusted her hair, filled the crevices of her mutilated body. She was missing an arm. Her eyes stared out just to the left of the door, and Kiesberg thought maybe he should adjust the chair so she would be looking more at it, less at nothing. Kiesberg stirred the pot. Maybe he was wondering about Alder Creek when he heard the moaning outside as if the crazy Irish had brought with them their banshee. Because a crazy Irishman would need something like a banshee screaming to tell him death was near when all a German needed was to look at the amount of food divided by the amount of people, divided by the amount of days, and so on. So, <laughs> a little on the intrepid American character and some cultural inheritance. That is the meat, excuse the pun, of a carnivore's inquiry. I've already mentioned the ability of the lost object to evoke memory, and much of the time in the articulation of what has been lost that is abstract, security, joy, self, People will speak of things that evoke the reality of feeling. My mother, whose life was shattered when the Japanese marched into Manila in 1941, marks her childhood in a before and after registry of objects. Children are always fascinated by the bizarre reality that their parents were once children. And I remember my mother telling me of her childhood in Manila. She had a sharkskin dress, very sophisticated, and not the thing for most little girls, and a Shirley Temple doll, life-size, purchased somewhere in the old Manila downtown, some store with uniformed attendants and long glass windows, the kind of place that didn't survive the war, and even if it had, would have been inaccessible to my mother, whose father, the giver of these gifts, was killed. In addition, after the war, and because of her father's death, 
Her family lived in reduced circumstances and could no longer afford such goods. Not surprisingly, I was curious about the Pacific campaign of the Second World War. While my mother supplied in silence, I would balance with fact. And so I pursued an impromptu course of study that consisted of history books, collections of personal accounts, things of that nature. My story collection, The Caprices, which takes its title from the Goya series of etchings, charts the Japanese occupation of not only the Philippines, but of other occupied territories with a particular interest in how the invading Japanese displaced American and European colonialism. There is always a personal pull to certain subject matter. But as a woman, and particularly as a woman with Asian heritage, I am aware of an expectation that the best one can write is loosely fictionalized memoir. Three generations of strong Asian women, or representations of cultural awkwardness in a new land, mom's stinky food, are the standard models for what sells in the U.S., uh, maybe the U.K. too, written by people like me. And despite the fact that of the nine stories in the Caprices, only three are set in the Philippines and only one can count as memoir, the other two being heavily and inventively plotted. The book was often described as me writing about my family. Appropriate behavior from a, for a woman of my background. However, the character I identify with most in that book is an Anglo-Indian man named Harry Gillen who is the subject matter of the story order precedence. This may seem odd, since he's a man, and Indian, and a soldier, and a polo player, all things that I am not. However, the fact that he is of mixed background and spends his time both in and out of the culture at the same time speaks to me. He is also both critical and complicit in the colonial culture, which I understand. Near the end of the story, Harry, now a prisoner of war in Changi in Singapore, goes to visit a major barristide, his former commanding officer with whom he has a fraught relationship and who, although it seems a lifetime ago, had him blackballed at the club back in Jubilapur where he was being considered for membership due to a skill at polo. Clearly, Barristide was sleeping, but his eyes were open a crack and the whites showed, although the irises quivered into view. Major Barristide, whispered Harry. It's Lieutenant Gillen, sir. The eyes shuddered open. Lieutenant Gillen, he repeated. Barristide took a deep breath. Harry, you look well. Harry nodded. So, the Major's face relaxed. I finally found a club that would take us both. I seem to be working backward through my books. A lot of people who know my work consider The Caprices, which was published in 2002, to be the first. But there is another, a novel, Slow Burn, that came out in 1990. That's a long time ago, and I was 20 when it was accepted for publication. Slow Burn follows party girl Isabel de la Fortuna as she navigates a crash and burn social scene in Manila in the days before Marcos's fall. It's not a particularly long book, nor complicated, but recently, preparing for another lecture, I returned to take a look at it something I hadn't done for a decade, and realized with some anxiety that my writing style was much the same as it had been in college. <laughs> this is from a funeral scene. The service was endless. 
Her many mourners, family and friends, serf and servants, serfs and servants, were listed along with all her good deeds, most of which she seemed to have accomplished post-mortem. <laughs> My mother sat in front of me, well-sedated, well-behaved. Nothing was natural. Even the light was filtered into purples and reds, and the air was thick with a scent, sweet smell of incense. Children's voices floated up from the choir box, and people wept dutifully. I do believe that my subject matter has become more sophisticated in the past 23 years, but beyond that, there's not much that separates that writing from what I do today. Although, when I wrote those lines, I couldn't have predicted that I would rely so heavily on research for my writing that half the fun of the process for me would be the research and without it the process of sitting in my study at my desk with my imaginary friends making things up would get very dull very quickly. What inspired me to travel to Peru this past October was that I wanted to see a wild rubber tree. I saw monkeys and macaws, venomous snakes and poison frogs, but finding that tree after a morning's hike really made the trip. Here I am, the tree seemed to say, and when the guide whacked its trunk with a machete, it dutifully produced the milky substance, a trickle of rubber, sticky stuff that had altered the course of history. When the week-long Amazon adventure ended and I, back in Nauta, recrossed that plank onto solid ground, I felt as if I were not only coming back to land, but also to the 21st century, a place of cell phones, and telephone, uh, cell phones and televisions, commerce and connection, a place of engines and roads. Well, at least one road. I had a couple of days to wander around Iquito, so I went to see the sites, all of them, at least all listed in the guidebook, which pointed you in the general direction of things, but didn't tell you what you might expect upon arriving. The Museo de Amazonica seemed a good place to go, not only since it was within an easy walk of my hotel, but also because the building had served as a seat of government at some point during the rubber boom. I wanted to see some rooms, some decorative arts, although Iquitos seemed weirdly familiar, as it has much in common with any provincial Filipino town. I felt oddly at home there, even though my Spanish is next to non-existent. The Museo de Amazonica building itself was attractive, but not remarkable. Two stories set around a courtyard, the sort of building you get in places like Mexico City and Manila, places built to deal with the heat before the advent of air conditioning. If the guide for hire had given me a choice, I might have said no. But his intensity was sort of entertaining, and I thought... If the, even if the information he provided was a bit suspicious, a little escape from my own solitude seemed healthy. And what was there to see? The building itself, a few faded photographs of the Quito streets, much the same, only them with horses dragging carts, women dragging skirts, and men curtained behind sweeping mustaches. But also, and more interestingly, were the statues of the Amazon Indians. These were life-size, and if I'm not mistaken, fiberglass, although all were painted a garish gold to approximate bronze. The sculptures were the work of Philippe Letterston, a Swedish-born artist who grew up in Lima. Letterston, who began the Sons of Our Land project in 1986, traveled up and down the Amazon finding tribes that were still living in the traditional way. 
He would then cast their likenesses, costumes and all, and execute full body molds in plaster. His goal was to preserve the tribes before they vanished. Letterston must have been a very literal person. The sense one gets looking around the galleries and hallways of the Museo de Amazonica cluttered with these gold Indian, Indians isn't exactly the feeling one gets when gazing at fine art. I thought of the myth of King Midas, but not the classical Midas, but rather one filtered through a TV episode of Lost in Space, something that had been lost in the space of my childhood, but that somehow came back to me in Iquitos. These Indians cluttered the hallways of the museo, busily making fires, collecting medicines, often in finery. I'd been in the jungle and seen some of these people. I, like Philippe Letterston, like Roger Casement, also had the feeling that I, what I was witnessing in this paradise, women washing at the river's edge with pink dolphins nosing up to them playfully, was in its last moments. I had gone to find a way to make the past live and breathe, and here, with these gilded Indians, was witnessing the opposite. Someone, somehow, Letterston had taken the living, breathing present and relegated it to the distant past. I thought of Roger Casement's letter to Herbert Ward, how he thought Ward would have rejoiced to have the molding of these shapely arms and real bronze, and wondered how he might have reacted to the spectacle of golden Indians peeking from behind shelves, cluttered in the galleries, gathering dust, chipping paint. And I wonder if when the Amazon Indians are lost to progress, if these objects will become significant. They will be the melancholy objects, the markers of what history is left behind. They will be all we have, and maybe from them we will think to create the magical Indians, the real Indians, the Indians of the mind. Thank you. If I've left any room for something you don't know about me, <laughs> I feel like you know everything about me that it could possibly be known or that I could share with you. But I am very happy to answer questions if you have any. Yes? The notion of historiographic metafiction is one where the, the fiction writer kind of um, uh, delves into and engages with the problems of Um, I, I have certain stories that really navigate in the gray areas um, of what seems like an essay. I will write little essays and then have uh, fictional characters come in and you know, engage in that way. Um, so I am very curious about that. Uh, I think that in another life, I might have just been a straight nonfiction writer, but um, I can't, every time I, I try to write something that's straightforward essay, I am overwhelmed by the need to make things up. 
Um, and maybe, maybe that's really what nonfiction people do. But you know, I'll be writing along, and I will have intelligent, I think, personally, in my, in my study with the office door closed with just me and my dog in there, they'll sound intelligent things to say. And then all of a sudden, I'll, uh, someone will be having a cup of tea, and you know, somebody else will be behaving badly, and it just kind of creeps in. But I am really kind of um, curious about how those two uh, interact, and I will occasionally just even insert myself as a writer into a story and ask a, a historical figure a question, and they'll have to answer me. Yes? If you could ask any question to Roger Casement, what would you ask him? Oh my God, what would I ask him? If I could ask Roger Casement, I would ask him what what his best self would be if he could have pictured himself happy and having gotten everything that he wanted at the end of his life, what that would look like. Um, because I, he, has a, he, has a, he has an articulate life story, but he just seems to be such a victim of history. It's a, every, every wave of history seems to just smash him against the shore. And I would really be curious to know, you know if he had gotten everything he wanted, what that would look like. I feel like I sound like I'm doing like the Miss America pageant with that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you, you were actually sort of describing Forrest Gump at the same time. Well, it's probably lurking somewhere there in the back matter, but, you know, I wasn't trying to describe. <laughs> that wasn't one of the things I was trying to do, but I do agree. Yeah, they, they do seem to have a bit of a parallel in there. Well, it's funny. When I travel, I feel completely invisible. You know, not only not an object, but not even a person. I feel like a ghost. Um, usually I'm by myself when I'm doing these research projects. And I do. I, I don't feel like... When people talk to me, I feel like there's something wrong with them. Like, you saw me? <laughs> um, so, in that, but, you know, it's also this weird... This filter that you have to put in there. And so... If an object, I would feel like a funnel, that everything I'm looking at is kind of being funneled back through me. Um, so that's how I would feel kind of the object in that situation. Do you feel like you have to be gracious? I think I, I do feel like I have to be gracious, but you know, because I feel so invisible, I'm not always aware of how I'm behaving. I'm sure I'm absolutely abominable at different points. Um, you know, a, a complete lack of self-awareness is not a good thing ever. Um, and that is kind of like how I feel when I'm traveling alone to research things. Yeah, she. Taking something living and relegating it to the past, and the example you gave is one that made it more abundant, but couldn't that be a mode of art? I think it would be very difficult to, to do, but probably worthwhile. Um, and I guess we all have that. The moment you write about something you do, you make it static, you kill it. Uh, and I guess that art is a bit that way too um, but I am aware of that that when you're writing something it feels very kind of generative and in flux and then when you create it into print it's stuck it's completely stuck and still and can be accessed you know, hundreds of years later and in that way it becomes very powerful in that mode um, but it is a, a process of, of kind of smacking things I think it was like flies and you smack them onto the page and they leave a little mark and then it's there for everyone Um, I suppose with the different readers, it evolves. You know, you're always lensing things in different ways. So each time you come in and you have your, 
your own historical baggage or cultural baggage, there is that meeting point that occurs. Uh, but as a writer, um, in my, my own hubristic state, I would like to think that I fixed it upon the page and it would have to be there exactly as I meant it for everyone. <laughs> yes. Well, I would hope it has a life, even though I like the idea of it being fixed. Um, but I do, I am influenced, I would say I am influenced by, you know, the writers of Latin America and people who uh, have that kind of that cultural legacy. In many ways, I share a cultural uh, legacy with uh, Latin American writers just by virtue of the fact of, you know, my mother's Filipino and I, I spent a lot of uh, years formidable, uh, formidable, hopefully formidable, formative <laughs> formative and formidable years in the Philippines. So um, in terms of that, that's a cultural legacy. I would certainly not try to distance myself from any of that. I would, I would hope to align myself with that. When you were describing the, the paintings of Goya, depicting how it was sitting child, did you do any research on that? Well... I actually was obsessed with this book of my mother's when I was little, and I mean, it was like pornography almost, because I found it so scary, and I would hide in a corner to look at this thing. Um, so, you know, that's enough research. That's just really a little kernel from my past, um, and it does stick with me. Uh, it ends up being a, the idea of Gothic, this high art that's also Gothic, does, uh, is one of the guiding forces that I think of, you know, when you're trying to engage people with art, that's what it might look like. Because uh, he went through a terrible period, Goya, mm. when he was painting those, uh, it was actually called the Black Period. Is that that? It's a Quinta, Quinta del Sordo. Yes, and uh, he was going through a terrible period because he was very much in love with the Duchess of Alba, mm. and uh, she just didn't, didn't respond the way he wanted. So he, he went through a terrible period and started to paint things like that. Well, if you're, if you're digging, I don't write as a result of unrequited love. <laughs> but who knows what's down the road? <laughs> um, I'm going to um, bring it to tabloid level. Martin Amis, mm. in the papers last week, um, commented that men were appalling and writing about sex and women were much better about it. Have you any views? Women are just better in general. <laughs> I don't know. Um, that seems like a funny comment coming from him. <laughs> it almost makes me think that he wants you to argue with him and then he'd argue back. So I don't know if I believe him. I don't know if he really thinks that. Or if he's just hoping that some woman's going to write these great sex scenes and then he'll get to read them. Maybe that's it. <laughs> yes. I mean, Steinbeck had a hard time with the East Coast people. Conrad is somebody completely divested of his culture. I mean, you were talking about wandering people. Uh, and similarly with Garcia Marquez, I mean, he had to make that jump. But, I mean, you, you didn't make that jump. You're very associated with, with explorers and people in your, as you just present yourself. I mean, where is your psychological center? 
Oh, that's a very good question, and I think um, I do feel like I do have a solid place that I'm always operating from, but it's not a geographical place. Um, it's a combination of places. Uh, I was in Australia from the age of 2 to the age of 12. I was in Western Australia, and that felt like living on an island because at the back you had the desert with all the flies and the heat, um, and your closest neighbor was Singapore. To get to Singapore, you had to go across uh, an ocean filled with sharks. Um, so by the time I moved to the Philippines, I, I had become in my mind an Australian but the whole time I lived in Australia, I was an American because my dad's an American. Um, and so I think that my center is just very much this cobbled together idea of, you know, Australian um, mixed race Filipina. And, you know, America is just a very accepting kind of culture where everybody's got all this different stuff going on. You fit there well enough. So um, I do feel that it's a combination of these three, American, Australian, um, and, and, you know, mestizo culture in the Philippines, which is its own thing. And that's your voice. That's my voice. Um, strangely, I'm not the only person who has this. I do have, you know, Filipina friends in the U.S., and we're all in the same place. Like, hey, you know, well, there may be ten of us, but we all are operating from the same place. So it's not so much like, oh, you know, it's so hard being me. But it's, you know, we're, we're a small um, kind of well-defined group of people. Yes. Um, well, there definitely is an aspect of that. Um, a part of the reason I was so drawn to writing these stories of explorers is that, you know, I, I get very obsessive when you're reading these accounts of people going into these extreme conditions. Um, I write about exploration. I write about war, too. These are also things that, you know, aren't really a woman's place. War, exploration in general, there are, of course, notable exceptions in both those um, fields. But you do wonder, what would I do in this place? And much of that... Um, much of my narrative thread, because you know, history is, you can't follow a narrative thread through history. History is like pouring um, a glass of water on a tabletop. It expands into many different directions. So my only, um, the way that I find my way through is to say, okay, I'm going to create this character, and then I'm going to give them my motivation. They might not have my character. They might not have my personality. But I have to, I have to provide my motivations. How else do you write? And so that's kind of what I use as my, um, my guidepost to get me through these massive, uh, um, kind of generative um, historical situations. Yes? You talked a little bit about nostalgia earlier, and I was just wondering what you're worried will cover, what it will cover if you let it sit there, because you work through history so much, it's so easy for people to um, imagine certain that are not at all the way that you seem to write about history. I was just wondering what you want to make sure it's not covered up. Can you say that? Um, I'm, I'm not sure quite I understand. I'm just wondering about how you see nostalgia playing either in your work or something that you've read against, or because your characters aren't nostalgic. I mean, the way you describe the situations just aren't nostalgic at all, or romanticized. Yeah. I mean, characters are like scaling mountains and then looking behind them with a gun to make 
which we know we also claim the title of yep. lead explorer, right? I, I like that. I just don't know um, what kinds of narratives you have in your head that you might be warding off by writing what you do. Well, you know, of course, when you talk about nostalgia, I don't know who it is. I think it might be Ibsen who says that nostalgia is that longing for that feeling, that no, that thing that happened that never was. Um, and so I'm very suspicious of nostalgia, just in general. Um, and also the fact that for every person that we know, like Mary Kingsley who's climbing the mountain and who makes her mark, that there are thousands of people who did equally um, impressive things that are just gone, that didn't make it into history. Um, and so I guess... I'm always aware that what you do might not really be that important. Um, and so that kind of just keeps me... There is that, you know, that chipper desire, desire to just put it down on the page and walk off from it. So um, the moment that you try to feel grand about anything, even in fiction, the moment you try to shine the spotlight and be like, and this was important, um, it just makes it seem ridiculous. So that's also a part of how I write, just the need to move on. It looks like everybody's ready for their wine. <laughs> well, if they are, thank you so much. What a treat. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you.